pamphlets and and things that um, in in our past how they would write and the titles and in our in our history Roger Williams had a ongoing battle in his pursuit for um, liberty as you remember he was um, disenfranchised and that really means that they could not buy or sell in in the state of Massachusetts and and so as we've talked before God led him but he carried on a a campaign pursuing uh, religious liberty and uh, he would write back to England to make um, them aware of some of the things that were going on and uh, his first booklet was the title was the bloody tenet of persecution for the cause of conscience and that was the title well uh, Reverend Cotton, who was a congregational minister in the Massachusetts area, did not like his book when he heard about it because it addressed how he was involved in persecuting these. So he wrote a reply, and his was called, The Bloody Tenant Washed and Made White in the Blood of the Lamb. Well, um... Roger Williams replied, and he called it, his next pamphlet was, The Bloody Tenant, Yet More Bloody, by Mr. Cotton's Endeavor to Wash It White. I told Mark, you don't even need to read the books. You just read the titles, and you begin to see. Uh, but um, there, we don't realize there was a long-standing battle going on for the religious liberty that we enjoy today. And it, it began as... Uh, go ahead. Well, you, you know that uh, last week you were talking about uh, Obadiah Holmes? Right. And John Cotton was one of the leading people to... Exactly. Uh, ...persecute uh, Holmes and, and Clark. And, and it wasn't a stretch in calling it a bloody... It was nasty, yeah. It was, there was, you know, as I've been doing this, I almost think that we ought to rotate this through and each of you gets a week of, of doing this because it is so stimulating to, to, to read this stuff. And I'm always amazed that, that I keep thinking, well, this has got to be the high point. I mean, this has got to be the peak of, of the interesting part of this and it's all going to go downhill from here. And it just, every week, you just come across more stuff that's just really interesting. Mark and I get together to talk about this, and, and really we feel, we feel bad for you folks because you're getting it through our filter. But in, in reading this stuff, every week we come and, man, there's some really good stuff here. And, and it is. As you read it, it, it's really challenging to our faith and in understanding what people committed to truth endured. And um, we've talked about Dr. John Clark who came over and, and we're not going to go back and rehash that. But um, in Rhode Island, which um, was set up, Roger Williams helped set that up and, and pursuing religious liberty. It was one of the leading ones. Well, see, not only was it 
the colonies there, but their relationship with England, well, someone went back and talked to the English Parliament and really ended up changing the charter for Rhode Island so that it, it completely changed the whole setup of Rhode Island. So Dr. John Clark and um, Roger Williams went back to England and started making appeals, working through the process. Uh, Roger Williams was there about a year or less than a year. <clears throat> but Dr. John Clark gave 12 years of his life in dealing with the appeal process, in, in talking to people, we would call it nowadays lobbying. And in that year, though, that period of time, there were changes in who the Archbishop of Canterbury was, who can, had much power in the Parliament and, and the King and so on. And um, as a result of his, his faithful, persistent, never giving up, um, he was able to have the charter reissued to Rhode Island. And um, it, was a, it was an issue that Rhode Island, as we'd mentioned before, their constitution was very instrumental in, in us establishing the U.S. Constitution. And they were one of the first colonies, one of the first areas that really opened the door to true religious liberty. Now, in the other areas, they didn't give up, though. We've mentioned Massachusetts. In, in Boston, where the flogging of Obadiah Holmes and so on took place, um, there were still Bible believers there that wanted the opportunity to meet for church without the state's approval. Again, the state said... These are who can meet, and it's our churches, and no one else can meet. And there was a, there was a man by the name of Gould, and uh, not a well-known, and, and that's one of the things um, Josh asked Mark if he had a PowerPoint today. And There's like no images of a lot of these Amer early American Baptists. We've got lots of images of... The ancient European guys, but uh, very few of, of these guys. And and the history of this, um, it's it's limited in finding the history on these people, and um, and it's often rewritten and revised. We talk about revisionist history. This isn't anything new. It's it's been going on. But Gould was in the Congregational Church. He through the study of scriptures through being connected and the teachings of John Clark. And that's another thing that and Mark will be sharing later here. The connections, how God worked. But anyway, Gould came and he said, you know, I don't see in the Bible that it teaches um, infant baptism. So uh, they had a, a daughter and um, he refused to have the daughter baptized as an infant. And the pastor of the church came and confronted him about it. And he was put in jail. He and two others were put in jail. Um, and those that gathered to meet of like mind were said that you can no longer meet. To make a long story short, they started, 
they, they went across to, it's called Noodles Island, and they would row their boats over there. And uh, they started setting up a colony over there and meeting with liberty of conscience. And um, just as a, a temporary solution um, and a temporary reprievement, it's interesting. The flogging of Obadiah Holmes really had a profound impact. And the Congregationalists and the state church people backed off. They, they were really put in a bad light. So they, they let these three that were in prison loose for a, a short time. And immediately, Gould set up a church service and uh, immediately gathered 15 to 20 people together and had a church service. Well, um, that was broken up and they ended up eventually going. He spent the next five years of his life at this Noodles Island preaching the Word of God, and a, and a, a mighty working of God took place, uh, a revival, and, and people would roll their boats over to this island to hear the Word of God preached. But through their faithful persistence to the Word of God, through a willingness to stand against stuff that wasn't included in the Scripture, um, they were finally... Uh, given permission, after Gould died, it was um, his faithfulness and his commitment to this that after Gould died, the church was granted permission by the court in Boston that they could legally meet in liberty of conscience. And just hearing about John Clark, 12 years in England, Gould spending... It really invested 50 years of his life. We often say, God, thank you for the privilege, the liberty to meet as we are here today. And in my mind, I honestly thought, you know, our people came to America and they set up religious liberty. No, they didn't come to America and set up religious liberty. It was hard fought. And it was a fight against the Reformationists that wanted a state church. And thank God for the Dr. John Clarks and the Thomas Goulds, and you're going to hear a lot more, that even their commitment to truth. Gould died, and when he died, he could have very easily thought, all my labor was in vain. Because it was years after that a first church was able to be... Um, open and, and have services in Boston according to their conscience. And yet, there was an unwavering commitment there that was willing to stand for truth. And I, I tell you, as I read about these things, I'm, I'm just challenged. What is my commitment to truth? And do I have to see certain things happen, or then do I question God and so on, but these individuals, and it was a very few minority that kept pursuing liberty of conscience, uh, the opportunity to meet and to open that up to anyone, and look what we have today, because of a few, and the difference that is made because of those few, and it, it's astounding, uh, Thomas Gould inconspicuously was was buried at 
somewhere on Noodles Island. I mean, there is no monument to him. But the fact of the matter is, God sees everything we do, and God will reward. And the key is to do right. And I am just so thankful for the heritage of people like this. And um, we don't know much about them. And I'm sure for everyone we do read about, there are 15 to 20 to 30 others that we don't read about. But from this, the church starting there in Boston, then the gospel started spreading in amazing ways. One of the things that... I find so amazing of the of the history of the Baptist is the the polity of Baptist churches, the the democracy, as it were, not only of how we elect deacons and, and so forth, but also the principle of of equality of of members of. And that had a great influence on the entire nation. You know, we don't, we don't have the nobility that... We didn't bring that over uh, when, when we crossed the Atlantic. We left nobility behind and, we, and, and, and we're this way. And I was reading this morning about... I'm jumping way ahead, but just, you know, so many of these stories would never really have time to tell if I don't take a rabbit trail every now and again. But Charles Evan Hughes is considered by judicial scholars to be the second greatest chief justice in the history of the Supreme Court. John Marshall, far and away, considered the greatest, but Charles Evan Hughes was fantastic. And he was, he was a man of incredible influence. He, he had been, been a member of the Supreme Court, dropped out uh, of the Supreme Court to run for uh, president. He was the Republican uh, candidate for president, was defeated by Woodrow Wilson, uh, but then was uh, appointed as Secretary of State and then appointed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And later, while he was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, was, was one of the founders of the Northern Baptist Convention. Um, he, he was, it was, his father was a, was a Baptist preacher, and when he moved to Washington, D.C. as a member of the United States Supreme Court, he uh, went forward to join the church, just like everybody does. And uh, the week that he joined the church, um, two people, at least two people joined the church. He and another gentleman stood side by side, just like we do when we joined the church. And we're, they were voted upon together. And these two men, throughout their lives, remained close friends. The Chief Justice of the United, Supreme, United States Supreme Court and the other guy, and we're talking the 1930, I think it was, was a Chinese laundry worker who immigrated from China to San Francisco to Washington, D.C. by the name of Ah Sing. And to have, you know, in 1930, today, this would be crazy. You know, that these two, but, but within the... The parameters of the church, uh, of, of the Baptist church, these two were brothers in Christ and, uh, and lifelong friends. You know, we go over the Baptist distinctives, and the foundation for, for that is the priesthood of the believer, that every one of us 
I mean, and what a higher calling can you get that we, our priests of God, have access to God? So, you know, we're going, the, the Supreme Court Chief Justice is going to God and uh, a laundry person, and uh, the, the opportunity, there is no respect of persons with God. Right. Because we as human beings are respecters of persons. We, a name says a lot. But getting back here, in Boston, because of this church starting, um, William Screven was a member of the Boston Baptist Church. He was fed up with the persecution by the Puritans to these Bible believers in Boston So he moved 60 miles north to the southern tip of Maine in 1682, and he started the First Baptist Church in Maine, and later, fed up because of the same problem, persecution there, he and 28 church members took a boat to Charleston, South Carolina, and started the First Baptist Church in the southern colonies, which Mark is going to... Uh, give us some some information here. But again, it was persecution at the hand of believers. Uh, yeah. The, m- many of you have heard of George Whitfield, um, uh, one of the great, great, great preachers uh, back um, in the uh, early 1700s. Um, he was, uh, he, he would speak and many, many came to know the Lord. I mean, Tens of thousands. And a lot of these people, um, well, he was a Congregationalist. And a lot of them were then Congregationalists because of, because of uh, Whitfield. But others found their way into other groups, including the Baptists. Now, when you people who are as old as me and older, you know, when we were kids... We didn't hear the term born again. But born again was not something that was bandied about the way that it is today. Everybody who ever ran for office since uh, 19, since Jimmy Carter has been born again. Right? Uh, and, and born again is, is, is a catchphrase, right? I mean, that's a phrase that we, that we use a lot. Um, the phrase that was used in those days was the new light, the, the new lights. Uh, these these were people who were born again, okay, and and they had a new light within them, um, and one of the and and uh, of the many of the Baptists became known as new light new light Baptists, um, and there were there were several different groups, but one group was was called the Particular Baptists, and they were much more Calvinistic. They were much more let God, you know, work. We don't really need to do anything if they're going to get sick. You know, they were Calvinistic. But a lot of these people who became real saved Christian Baptists 
uh, kind of moved in this other direction, and later on are going to be called separate Baptists. And um, I know that for many of us, we think separate and Baptist is, is redundant. Um, Joe, 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 I'm just, I, oh, you can't leave at this moment. You have to stay for one <laughs> second. Because we've got to start out with a guy by the name of Stearns. Okay? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, Shubel. See how we're respect there's a person? Yeah, yeah. If he said we're starting out with a guy by the name of Smith, yeah, but, no. but Stearns. But, no. <laughs> it's getting good, right, yeah. Shubel, Shubel Stearns, um, Shubel, which if, I think should be a next name that you consider in your family. Uh, bo- born in 1706. Um, by the way, didn't, uh, didn't uh, become a Baptist until he was uh, in his mid-40s and became a preacher almost immediately. Shubel Stearns has this gigantic role in taking the Baptist faith and establishing Baptist churches through the region of the country that most of us, when, when we say Baptist, we think of the, the South, right, the southern states. And... and and Shubel Stearns is really the guy here. Now, he's originally, I believe, from New England, um, but then calls, feels called to go south. And he ends up uh, in a place in, uh, uh, in Virginia and, and uh, is working in Virginia. He br- brings along with him his brother-in-law and, and his brother-in-law's family, a man by the name of Daniel Marshall. And Stearns and Marshall are going to be gigantic in bringing uh, Christianity in general to the South and, and uh, Bap- the Baptist faith in particular to the South. The, you know, I guess I always, you think of the South and you think of the Bible Belt and you think of, you know, right? No, I'm talking early American history. This place was not the hotbed of Christianity. In fact, you all know that Georgia started out as a penal colony. I mean, the British, they didn't want these guys. They sent them to Georgia. I mean, they, they were, this was a rough bunch. Atlanta's old. Oh. Atlanta still is. Okay. Charles Stanley? Michael Vick? Throughout the South... Um, Today, we think of it as being very Baptist. Not the case early, early on. And anyway, um, Stearns doesn't stay long. You want to get that? Uh, the, uh, it's Michael Vick. It's Michael Vick. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, anyway, while in Virginia, while in Virginia, as we were saying, all these guys are connected. Um, uh, Daniel Marshall, who, this is really bizarre because I keep reading what a rotten preacher he was, that he was not a gifted speaker. He leads thousands to the Lord. Okay, now, I, what's the definition of a good preacher? I think if you lead thousands to the Lord, you're probably a pretty decent preacher. Uh, but, he, but anyway, among those that, that uh, Daniel uh, Marshall led to the Lord was uh, Dutton Lane, who's going to stay in Virginia and is going to be huge in spreading Baptist churches throughout Virginia. 
and um, the Murphy brothers, who were the hardest drinking, living, fun-loving guys you're ever going to want to meet. And they get saved and both become preachers. And um, the one stays in Virginia. The other one goes to, I think, South Carolina. And wherever they're going, um, God has got such a cool sense of humor or whatever you want. Because he'll take somebody like these guys who, and he will cleanse them of their sin, but leave their their joyous nature uh, in them and and replace replace where they're getting their joy. And um, these two are going to have a huge role in in Virginia and later on in South Carolina. Um, But um, Stearns, he's not like in Virginia. I don't know. It's too humid or something. So he goes to North Carolina, which I've never been to North Carolina. Probably is humid. Anyway, he goes to a place called Sandy Creek, North Carolina. He and uh, the Marshall family, total of 16 people, found the Sandy Creek Baptist Church there. 16 people. Within two years, it's 600. Okay, now we're not talking that many people living down there at this time. I mean, we are, we are looking before the American Revolution. There's not that many people that are there. 600 people regularly in attendance every, every Sunday uh, for, for services. And out of this Sandy Creek uh, Baptist Church, there are going to be 42 daughter churches born all over the South. And... Um, out of this one congregation, 125 pastors are called from this one congregation. All right, and uh, this, to me, this, this is amazing. Okay? And among them, one guy, Daniel Marshall, uh, who, I, who I just, the brother-in-law, the lousy preacher, he's going to go out and start like half of these churches, including he's going to travel up north, Back to Virginia, and he's going to run. He's going to meet a guy by the name of Samuel Harris, and Samuel Harris is going to um, get saved through the ministry of of, of uh, Daniel Marshall, and Marshall's going to lead uh, uh, anyway lead lead him to the Lord and baptize him, and he is going to probably be, you know, I mentioned the Murphy brothers, but but Harris is going to be the primary Baptist of Virginia. I mean, this guy is going to be the one who is going to play. You know, you, you read about how the Baptists influenced Thomas Jefferson's presidency. And so this Samuel Harris is who we're talking about. This guy is everywhere, and he plays an important role in the American Revolution. He's a patriot. He's a pastor. He's, he is an evangelist. He's traveling around, and in those days it was not unusual at all for to form a church here, and then you, 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 you're here for a while, and then you go on, and, um, and one week you're at this place, and you just kind of have a circuit where you're going from church to church. Um, and he's, he, I mean, he's the pastor of churches that are several hundred in several different places that, you know, throughout, throughout uh, this, the colony of Virginia. Daniel Marshall travels down 
to um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just make sure I didn't forget something here. Um, Daniel Marshall ends up going to Kyle Keyes. Um, Did your mic shut off? Thank you. Hello. Uh, there. Okay. Don't sneeze. Don't sneeze. <laughs> um. Okay. I'm. Well, anyway, the, um, <coughs> Daniel. I know I'm. I know I'm going to forget something here, and I'm losing my place. And that's the way it goes. Uh, Daniel Marshall goes to Kyoki, Georgia, and sets up. The, the Baptist church there in, in Kyoki, which becomes the mother church of all of the Baptist churches in Georgia. I mean, I say that Sandy Creek has 42 daughter churches. That Kyoki counts as one. And then from Kyoki, um, there's many, many, many more Baptist churches throughout Georgia that, that are started by people leaving the Kyoki church. Um, there was, oh, now I know, i got, I got to go back to Sandy Creek for a minute here. Um, in uh, the Carolinas, uh, the governor, whose name was Tryon, T-R-Y-O-N, was an evil guy. Uh, and, and we're talking the royal governor here. And lived in, a, I mean, he had the greatest governor's palace in the English um, empire, in the British empire. I mean, he and and he just had he had his cronies and they were they they were just making money like you couldn't believe. And at the same time, the Sandy Creek is is growing like crazy. And the the people are drawn not only to the Christianity, but as I say, they're drawn, uh, drawn to the democracy of the of the Baptist church. And there becomes this parallel of Christianity Baptist Christianity and democracy. And it's one of the reasons why the Carolinas become a real hotbed of the American Revolution. And the um, they send out, uh, Tryon's just sick of these guys, and he sends out um, soldiers to arrest some of these guys, including um, the, the, the Shubles and, and others, who are, honestly, I can say miraculously, just they're not there whenever, that, whenever these guys show up. But there was, remember when I was telling you back in France, you had the Waldenses, but you also had the Knights Templars that was this kind of parallel organization? There was this group much closer on the parallel called the Regulators. And they were the political arm of the of the Baptists, and um, one of their leaders was a guy by the name of Merrill. I think it was Thomas Merrill, and he was arrested, and he was charged with with being a regulator, with being a Baptist. I mean, that was it. I mean, of being a political leader and being a Baptist. That was his charges. And we read, you know, we heard about Obadiah Holmes beating and stuff. 
This guy was brought before Governor Tryon, and he was sentenced not to a beating but to death. And his death was to he would be taken back and hanged, but not until dead, until just before death. And then he would be cut down, and this happened, and his bowels would be removed while he was alive and burned before him. And then he would be beheaded. This is the, the, what will become the United States in the 1700s. This is, this is in 1767. This is nine years before the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, it's interesting. We look back, and, and I teach American history, and, and, and all of our books talk about the Boston Tea Party. And this, this was a pivotal moment in Baptist history. This was a pivotal moment in American history. Because you can't just take somebody out, hang them, debowel them, burn their bowels in front of them, and behead them for being a Baptist. And that's what happened. Now, one of the things, what happened in, in, in the Old Testament when, uh, or in the, New, in the New Testament when the persecution came, the disciples scattered. Same thing happened with Sandy Creek. These people got on their horses and they left. They left North Carolina. They went into Tennessee. They went into Kentucky. They went into Georgia. They went into South Carolina, to a lesser degree in South Carolina. And they carried their faith with them. And this one event, now Sandy Creek's still around and it's still a strong uh, Baptist place. And not everybody left, but a lot of them left because of this persecution of, of Governor Tryon. And they and they took their they, they took their faith with them everywhere they went. We really don't have time to, to really do all this just, but real I gotta go with I gotta tell you about one more person. Daniel Her, uh, Dan, Daniel Marshall when he goes down to Kyokie, he's preaching and the law is you can only preach if you are of the Church of England. So he is arrested. Now, he's 65 years old at the time. And he gets arrested. And the constable who arrests him, you know, right away, instead of, you know, arguing his, his innocence and you can't do this to me and I'm a subject of the king and da, 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 da. Instead of all that, he and his wife, Daniel Marshall and his wife, Anne, start witnessing to him. And the next day, he, he's... He's taken before the magistrate, and he presents his case so well that the, the, he does get fined. He, he, he does get fined. He gets released after the fine. The magistrate gets saved, and the constable gets saved. And the constable was a man by the name of San, Samuel Cartledge, and Samuel Cartledge who's much, much younger. I mean, we're talking, he's 65, Daniel Marshall is. And Samuel Cartledge gets saved, gets baptized, becomes a preacher, and really becomes the driving force. He moves to South Carolina and becomes the driving force of the Baptists in South Carolina. And these guys are just connected, 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 connected. I'm not even halfway through all these connections, okay? It's just, they're amazing how... How, how the Baptists got moved from here to there to there. And the principles 
the principles of what they stood for were so important because it was not an easy thing to be a Baptist. It was naughty. I mean, it could end up costing you the most painful death. It could end up getting you whipped. It could end up... You had no political influence. You had no anything. And to become a Baptist meant to... If you were a, a person of any influence, that if you were not, if you weren't a Baptist, and you became a Baptist, it would cost you what influence you had, and your chances of being a political mover and shaker and, and so forth. And it's, it's. I'm not sure that God wants Baptists in politics. I know that we're going to argue about that, but I, I'm not sure that they. It, every time we have a Baptist president, he stinks. Uh, I mean, you go look. You go yeah, look. We There've had been, a true Baptist president. We have five. We've had five Baptist presidents, and they've not been good. <laughs> um, and now, you know, Warren G. Hardy. Through through <laughs> all of this, you you begin to see that God is in control. Absolutely. And you know, He says, "Fear none of those things that shall come to you." And um, these are some horrific things, but God gave grace, and God then opened the doors. And it's amazing to me in seeing this, how God prepared people and used people. George Whitfield is a phenomenal human specimen. He would preach to 10,000 to 25,000 people. And they'd all hear him without any microphone system. I got like a hundred of you here, and you had to bring the microphone over to me. They said you could hear him nearly one mile away. I mean, you had to be prepared of God for that. You know, you know, the word terrific, the root word is terror. And the, the, the history of the Baptist is terrific. It really Filled is. Filled with terror. And terrific. Pray. Father, thank you so much for this time that we could spend together. We thank you for our heritage. We thank you so much for what, what you have worked ahead of us. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us to be, to be mindful and to, to hold our banner of Christ and of, the, of our Baptist heritage up high. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.